0: Welcome, everybody, to the Institute for Government for what promises to be a, a fascinating evening. Uh, we're joined, as I'm sure all of you know, uh, Professor uh, Sir Lawrence Friedman, uh, one of our uh, foremost military thinkers, um, uh, here to talk about how government could prepare for fu- the future of war, and, indeed, to talk about his book, The Future of War, A History, which I'm sure came out a few days ago. I'm sure many of you read it already. If you haven't had the chance to read it, uh, it is on sale outside, <laughs> and I believe um, Sir Lawrence will be signing copies of the uh, of the book uh, later on. Um, I'm Daniel Thornton. Uh, I'm Programme Director here at the Institute for Government. Um, we're not expecting a fire alarm. If one should go off, uh, please uh, head that way, the way you came in, down the stairs, and meet at the statue of uh, King George. Um, we are expecting uh, to have an hour of conversation, uh, followed by drinks, uh, I'll, I'll uh, take the liberty of asking uh, Sir Lawrence a few questions myself, and then we'll open it up uh, to the audience. Um, so, first of all, I mean, what um, I, I mean, I must say, I really enjoyed the book. Um, uh, I found uh, pithy summaries of, of strategic issues. Uh, I found um, uh, 150 years of predictions and how they turned out. Um, usually, they didn't turn out all that well um i found philosophy poetry literature tom clancy um and and much more besides um but what 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 um what brought you to write the book
1: um well to start with i've been asked to write a book on the future of war um i thought that would be interesting um being sort of a historian i thought well i'll make the first chapter one on the history of the future of war. Um, And then when I started to look at the history of the future of war, um, it became apparent that, um, first, I wasn't sort of stepping into an area where no one had boldly gone before. There were numerous books on the future of war. And secondly, the track record, as you've indicated, wasn't that good. Um, And also, it was just really interesting because what these books did was reveal a lot about the assumptions and expectations of the time. They were obviously looking forward, um, but actually they were about the debates of the moment and predictions. There weren't so much predictions as prescriptions. They, they were uh, essentially saying, if you follow this uh, stupid course of action that is currently being followed, then these are the horrors that will result. However, uh, here is an alternative course that if you follow and everything will be just fine. So... Um, that's basically why I decided to expand the, whole, the first chapter into, into the whole book.
0: And, uh, I mean, you finished the, uh, finish the book with the word sceptically, and mm. that, that seems like the right word mm. for, for, for the approach of the book as a whole. Mm. I mean, both to um, the effectiveness of predictions, um, to uh, the optimism bias in campaigns. Um, <coughs> you have a marvellous quote from, uh, from Margaret Atwood about... Um, uh, wars happen because the ones who start them think they can win. Uh, and um, often it turns out that the people who think that they can win uh, don't. Yes. Um, and the war turns out to be a much more painful exercise for many people. Um, so, I mean, am I right in thinking that's, you know, you ended the word with that word deliberately and, and very consciously? And, and is, that, is that fair to say that's the theme of the book?
1: Yes, I mean, because I don't want just to sort of damn everybody and say, you know, everybody's foolish and they never get it right. um, Because some people do get it right and and some people are making an honest effort and others are um, are sort of caught up in the the assumptions of the time and uh, nobody else particularly is getting it right around them. So uh, it's a questioning attitude. But obviously if you're going to be talking about why people get into wars, then you want that scepticism to be uh, pretty thorough, pretty sharp. Um, because, as you say, the, the one of the themes, I think, that comes through is the continuing uh, belief that there's a clever way to do it. Uh, and if you've just followed this clever way, or your enemies follow this clever way, a, a knockout blow uh, is in sight, and that knockout blow will give you the victory uh, that, that, that will give you the political power which you crave. So uh, it's particularly sceptical, I'd say, about the idea of, of, of surprise attacks and knockout blows as being decisive.
0: But are you saying there isn't a clever way to fight wars or prepare for wars?
1: It's actually quite difficult to um, prepare for the right war. I mean, there's a number of people in this room uh, will remember Sir Michael Quinlan, who's Uh, had a famous adage about the the wars for which you prepare won't happen precisely because you prepared for them. Uh, And it's always the ones that you haven't prepared for that happen for the same reason. So um, uh, it is actually difficult to get it right. And I think part of it is um, the ability to to think through not the first move, uh, or the first move an opponent might make, but the second and third move. And actually what that indicates is the difficulty in sustaining a campaign over time, which is a very different sort of preparation to the question of what sort of frontline forces do you happen to have when a war starts.
0: But um, as any chess player will tell you, predicting several moves ahead is, is, gets sort of exponentially more difficult. Um, and you have that nice Hannah Arendt quote about every action uh, disrupts the pattern of mm. prediction. Um, so, you know, it's pretty hard to predict yeah, two or three and moves and ahead, right? prediction I mean, is
1: hard, and, and, and yeah. that's certainly another theme of the book, yeah. is uh, prediction is hard because you're trying to predict choices that haven't yet been made. You're trying to predict other people's choices that haven't yet been made about circumstances you're, you're trying to imagine. I think it's more a question of recognising that things may, may not turn out uh, as you anticipated. My, my previous book was on strategy, and I, I sort of, there I sort of tried to challenge the idea um, of a plan that you start from your desired end point and there 's a sequence of steps that inevitably get you to that point uh, and, and it rarely works out like that so it 's to be aware of the things that can go wrong and then you 're going to need to improvise uh, if you 've got no capacity for improvisation if everything you 've put in uh, is is committed early on i mean let 's take a you know a specific example of, of Hitler and operation Barbarossa um, I mean, if that had worked, uh, as he anticipated, then they would have, um, the, the, the Bolsheviks would have been out, and Stalin would have been out within a matter of months. Uh, because he wasn't, you uh, were was stuck with a Russian winter for which they weren't prepared. Uh, so it, 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 it's, it's getting rid of the optimism, optimism bias, I guess, that, that tends to afflict people when they think they've got a, a great scheme for winning a war.
0: So turning to, I mean, the subject for the Institute for Government is how to make government more effective, and we're obviously interested in um, some of the big decisions that are made about, uh, you know, um, uh, committing to weapon systems and so on. I mean, although it's predictions a mudg's game, if I might summarise your position, um, um, you know, they, nonetheless planners need to plan. I mean, they, you know, um, procuring and building an aircraft carrier takes a decade or more um, then it's in service for 30 years or however long. Um, so, you're kind of locked into a particular way of, of, of fighting a war and preparing for a war by the very nature of the systems that you're procuring, aren't you?
1: Indeed, and, and, and that has always been a, a problem. Uh, it hasn't always been a problem because the lead times used to be shorter. Uh, but now we have very long lead times and when there's messing about over the decisions and what design you're going for and who's going to build it and where and what deals you can do on the side, then it takes even longer. So you have to think in terms of capacity, that, that essentially what you're doing is, is building a capacity that can cope with a number of contingencies. So you can assume in most of the things we're going to do, air power is going to be important. Uh, if you're going to have air power, then uh, is it just going to be close to the UK or do you need to take it with you, hence the need for an aircraft carrier. Um, but then you get into these questions of quantity versus quality. Um, which is you know, a debate that we might have had more intensively d- a decade or so ago when, when deciding on how to go forward with aircraft carriers.
0: So just to spend a bit longer on that, I mean, so essentially, <coughs> as I understand it, when you send out an aircraft carrier, you have to have a third of the Navy with you to kind of keep it safe. I don't know if that you recognise that description. Um, but that sort of locks in quite a lot of the Navy to doing um, one thing. Um, well, you see,
1: I, I, and this is quite... I mean, it's just not... I particularly talk about in the book, but it's quite an interesting example because the the, the aircraft carrier idea came from the 97-98 Defence Review, and it was linked with ideas of expeditionary warfare, um, and it was linked with the thought that we probably weren't <coughs> going to be fighting great powers anymore, because if you had an aircraft carrier to fight other great powers, then the third of the navy, that you need all the escorts to go with, but if what you were doing was making sure. Um, that if you were engaged uh, in, in uh, uh, I mean the Gulf or the Balkans uh, against an enemy that didn't have anti-ship missiles of, of, of any real quality that couldn't come after you. You were basically taking your own aircraft carrier, your own airbase around with you. Then maybe you didn't need all those escorts. Well, by the time it arrives, we're thinking in terms of Russia... Russia. Or, or, or maybe even China, who, of course, do have these substantial capabilities, uh, where an aircraft carrier all of a sudden looks rather vulnerable to put in those conditions. So that is, you know, indi- indicates the, the difficulty, that the, the, uh, the strategic circumstances you have in mind when you start the procurement process are, are very much different to those um, that when it's finished. Now, you know, I think at the time there was always a view that maybe the sensible way to go was to have lots of HMS oceans, or quite basic things that could take, uh, helicopters and uh, maybe jump jets and so on, uh, without having to go for, for, for something that, that tries to uh, get an equivalent to what the US Navy might like. Uh, so uh, you know, the, the options were available at the time to go for more, uh, of, uh, more smaller carriers. That's not the one that was taken.
0: And so, is it part of the, the sort of thrust of your argument in the book that, that essentially the Ministry of Defence should be pursuing a more kind of modular, um, small-scale, interoperable kind of um, systems rather than kind of some l- very large bets on one particular way of doing I things? I think it's
1: unwise to make a large bet on a, on a particular type mm. of conflict. Mm. Uh, so, you know, you, you again, you look at w- what was being written a decade ago. Uh, and it was assumed that the Iraqs and the Afghanistans, one way or the other, represented the conflicts of the future. Um, and then, as we wearied of those, um, and drones were being used instead, then you know, uh, autonomous vehicles were. Re- and and it's and it, and it, uh, actually what you need to do within what are becoming very tight budgetary constraints as give yourself as much flexibility as you can, because it is very difficult to choose. So you can assume you'll need air power. You can assume you're going to need some ground forces. You'll probably need special forces. We have a nuclear deterrent uh, because we have a nuclear deterrent and you never know what the future may hold. Uh, So the elements uh, actually suggest themselves. You don't have uh, a capacity to cope with every contingency, And you have to accept that at the end of all of this, there's certain things you just can't do anymore.
0: Does the same thing apply to alliances, that we should be hedging our bets and not you know, not putting all our eggs in one basket?
1: I think I mean I think that's a really important question at the moment. Um I mean part of my argument would be when I when I make a, at the end of the book, is that um the so-called long peace uh that meant we've had with World War One and World War Two, and we've never quite managed the third in the series. Uh is, to some extent, a reflection of a fear of of nuclear weapons, of of deterrence. To some extent, people just don't want any sort of war. Wars are pretty unprofitable. But it's also a function of the alliance system. Um, The United States is quite unique, historically and and, and currently, in the range and scope of its alliances. Um, And if these start to come apart, then you're in a very different... Setting and, and that, to my mind, it, w- it would make more more possible both in Asia and in Europe, possibly even more so in, in, in Asia than in Europe, because I think China is a genuinely rising power and that raises issues about how other countries in the region, never mind the United States, cope with it. Europe, I think, Russia is actually more manageable, uh, but it's still a challenge, and so. Um, I think the future of the alliance system is something that we need to pay more attention to. We've sort of kept NATO, taken NATO for granted. um, But we have a president who doesn't particularly believe in it, uh, even if if he's told to stick with it for the moment. And he's not necessarily reflecting a unique or perverse view from the American standpoint. So I think it is worth keeping in mind the question of the the future of the transatlantic alliance. And of course, this raises particular questions for the UK because at the moment, when we're sort of edging away from one recent pillar of our foreign policy, we're also edging away potentially from another as well if the, if the transatlantic relationship becomes more difficult. So I think, uh, you know, in all of this talk, it's easy to get focused on uh, the technology, the new technologies, and the, and the kit and so on, but actually, w- or as Clausewitz tells us, is a function of politics. And, and if the politics changes dramatically, then conflicts can suddenly emerge in places where you didn't expect them.
0: You've got a nice example in the book of uh, Ronald Reagan being influenced by Tom Clancy's books. Yes. Um, I'm not sure what, what Trump's reading, but um, I mean, it does seem. Fox News headlines. Fox News headlines, yeah. Um, which somehow get recycled into a kind of echo chamber inside the administration and back out again. Um, so, um, I mean, is, is part of what you're saying then that um, as the UK leaves the EU, this, this security treaty that, that has been talked about shouldn't just be a negotiating chip, it should actually be a serious thing?
1: Oh, I think, it's, uh, I think it, 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 if, if and when Brexit happens, then the security treaty is very important. Um, and I think there's quite an appetite in, in, in Europe, most of 27, as it were, to make it so because uh, should things change uh, in the transatlantic relationship, and we certainly shouldn't write NATO off, but should things change, then it could become even more important. And of course, it's relevant to things like terrorism and, uh, and crime and so on. It's not just, it's not just about uh, the big issues. Uh, and then, you know, we have things like, uh, you know, quite a strong Franco-British um, security relationship already. And, that's separate from the EU. So I, I don't see any reason why that should be uh, undermined. Indeed, one can argue that uh, if everything else is, is becoming more fragile, then this maybe is something that we can uh, use to keep our connections going. So
0: turning to the question of, of when the UK should intervene, um, you, um, you talk in, in the book about um, the, the Blair doctrine. Um, and I think I think it's the case that you were some somewhat involved in helping
1: uh, so it's been said
0: craft this. I've, I've read it in a couple of history books, so I, I always believe what I read in history books. Um, and I think I think the conditions that Tony Blair set out were confidence in the case that you've got uh, diplomacy exhausted, plausible military options, uh, be prepared to be in in it for the long haul, and make sure your national interests are engaged. I mean, do you think those are still the right conditions for the UK to? to I hold? think they're
1: still pretty important headings. For discussion, um, and, you know, there's, with, with any of these lists, um, there's a question of weighting which is more <laughs> important than the others, um, and certainly, you know, if you apply it to Iraq, um, it produces some, you know, some quite telling arguments. Um, I think the the uh, one of the issues that wasn't discussed uh, in, so much in that speech is. Uh, the public opinion. It's sort of bound up with the question of, are you sure of your case? I think one of the things that came out of Iraq is it's pretty hard to sustain a conflict over time when you haven't convinced the public of the case, um, and it starts to turn against you. Uh, I mean, one of the uh, inspirations, if you like, yeah, inspirations for for the five points in the Chicago speech um, was points that Kaspar Weinberger had made uh, after the debacle in Beirut in, in the mid-1980s, which is an operation he'd been opposed to all, all along. Um, and I didn't necessarily agree with, with all of his, but one of the points he was making uh, was the importance of being able to keep public opinion with you, obviously with the background of Vietnam as well still. That, that was important. And I think it is, it is, it is a challenge, really, uh, if you're thinking about future interventions, especially in the light of Iraq and the uh, scepticism that resulted from that about when government says, uh, here's the case, people may not be so inclined to believe it anymore. I think that is something that that has become more important and more difficult in in social media age.
0: But you, you, sort of, as you point out in the book, that these things go in cycles to some extent. Yeah. So you have the debacle in, in Somalia, and then no mm-hmm. intervention in Rwanda. Then everybody says, "Why didn't we intervene in Rwanda?" And it, you know, so the cycle sort of goes. Yeah, and then
1: Syria more recently. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I mean, and, and it depends on the cases. As you mentioned, you know, the, the events, Du boy events, sort of point the the the, the cases that come up. Uh, challenge you in particular ways. Iraq was unusual because it, it was sort of something that we initiated. It was a response to um, past UN resolutions, but essentially it didn't have to happen yeah. at that time in, in that way. Whereas most of the time uh, you're responding to things that are going on and you don't have uh, the same amount of time to respond. Uh, so, so I, I, you know, I. I, I And I think also, you know, one of the things that we've learnt from Iraq and Afghanistan is the sheer difficulty of creating conditions in which uh, the problem that got you there in the first place won't happen again, which is the basic problem of intervention. In two cases, we toppled governments and then tried to find a way of replacing them. And essentially, they were our government, however you wanted to play. We had a responsibility to them. Uh, and you know, we've discovered that's really very difficult. Uh, so I think future interventions are going to need uh, much greater confidence in your local partners. One thing we've learned is that uh, you need decent, uh, credible local partners who uh, won't fall apart as soon as you leave.
0: I mean, the other striking thing in Iraq is the extent to which the UK took responsibility for such a wide range of activities and, and basically running a state in part of the country under the un resolution which didn't seem like we were really it didn't seem like your conditions were really engaged i mean we weren't no. really in it for the long haul
1: we weren't really in it for the long haul um and uh, there's a report that <laughs> <laughs> i spent much of my 60s on and uh, i know you've been involved in uh, looking in the aftermath of the Chilcot report no, no we weren't you know we, we took on these responsibilities uh, in, a, in a rather sort of careless manner, we, we, weren't, we, be, we became a joint occupying force um, uh, through a UN resolution without really thinking through what this meant. It's, it, it is quite extraordinary, uh, despite the fact that we were going into a country like Iraq, how little preparation there'd been made just in terms of, never mind full contingency planning, having uh, a group of people ready to go uh, and start moving things along in country. You know, these things just weren't ready. Um, So that was probably, you know, hopefully an extreme example uh, of the problem. Uh, And, you know, while that's going on, you've got this talk about we're going to make an exemplary contribution and so on. So I think one thing, again, people are going to be careful about in the future is excessive ambition, is making claims for what you can do uh, with an intervention, far beyond what's likely to be practical. It is one of the things about warfare, uh, any war is uh, because it's so horrible, because you're as- expecting sacrifice, because um, it involves so much tragedy, you want to believe something really good can come out of it at the end. But precisely because it has been so hor- horrible and bitter um, and causes so much destruction, actually, it makes those good things often even harder to accomplish afterwards. So you know, the, the keeping the ambition in check, talking realistically about what can and can't be done, is not a bad start.
0: And in a way, um, the, the book and the Chilcot Report go together in terms of, um, I mean, I think the government's lesson from the Chilcot Report has been, we need to build in more challenge to our processes, and that's, yeah. that seems like a sensible, uh, sensible uh, conclusion, but it's a question of how they do that practically and, 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 and you know, really embed that in the Ministry of Defence and other places.
1: Yeah, I mean, my view—I uh, haven't thought about it. I've had a number of discussions uh, in government uh, after Chilcot. Is um, yeah, I mean, you want challenge throughout your intelligence community, or is this a good idea, and so on? Uh, but after a point, you know, in the in the lower ranks, uh, you make your you make your case, and then you just have to go along. You can't suddenly sort of keep on returning to an issue, say, in the name of Chilcot, I, <laughs> I, uh, I demand that you reopen this. I think it's much more important at the senior levels, at the high levels of government. There's far too much uh, just sort of going along with something because politically this is where the country seems to be, or where the Prime Minister of the day seems to be, um, the real challenge. And the readiness to take dissent from... Whether it's intelligence officials or military officers and so on, has to come from the top. Uh, you need that sort of um, worry, the still small voice that tells you, well, maybe not everything I'm being told is correct. Again, something else, you know, that came through was um, the problems of getting what we call ground truth. Uh, you know, by the time <coughs> the reports uh, from the from the from theatre have reached the top, they've gone through a variety of pro- filters. Um, uh, or else uh, they're just, you know, sort of... Uh, well, we've had a little bit of difficulty, a uh, spot of bother, um, it was a bit of blip. Uh, but we're, we're over it now. We, we think we're, um, it's it's we, we're... It's all under control. It's all under control. We're moving ahead, and we're really, we're quite positive and, and so on. And, and you know, you, you really need somebody giving you the awkward and varnished truth, saying, actually, it's not really going very well.
0: And I think the Ministry of Defence is not the only department that suffers from that uh, that syndrome. Um, So, my final question um, I mean, so having gone through the Chilcot inquiry, um, as you say, for some years, um, uh, quite a broad remit you were given by um, the Prime Minister who had attention to detail. um, um, What advice would you give uh, people entering into future inquiries?
1: Never believe a cabinet secretary when they tell you it's going to be uh, a over my years Christmas? And, and two days a week. Um,
2: uh,
1: I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I, think, the, well, I think the basic advice, because advice is a historian I learned, uh, and uh, our, our wonderful secretary, Margaret Aldred, is, is in the audience, um, is actually you don't write an inquiry like you write a book. Um, I mean, it, it might be more pleasing to read something, but actually the basic importance of, of, of the inquiry and why it takes time. Why Saville took a long time, why we took a long time. Saville took much longer than I would add. It was much more expensive.
0: <laughs> uh, um, and the league table of inquiries, you, table were, you were But fine, why it yeah. takes time
1: is you have to get the evidence out. Uh, if, you, if you're trying to rebuild trust um, and say, actually, this is what happened, uh, this is the things, you know, honest mistakes, Egregious errors or whatever. This is what happened. Uh, you've got to get the evidence out. Um, and that does require this happened. you know, it's a chronicle in some ways more than than a history. Um, and I think that I think that is an important uh, lesson of uh, of an inquiry. Uh, the days when people would just trust uh, a few people to look through the evidence and come out and say, well, this is what happened. A few things went wrong here. Here are some corrective ideas. That won't work anymore. People do need to see the information and the evidence. And then I think I believe the case with Chilcot. They accept it. They're prepared to accept it.
0: But do you wish at the beginning you'd said, you know, okay, Prime Minister, this is a you know pretty broad you know terms of remit, um, terms of reference. you know, we're going to focus on X, Y, and Z, um, and could you have narrowed it down a bit? Because, I mean, it is is—it is an incredible, enormous document. I've been trying to read it, and, uh, you know... You're one of the very few people <laughs> in this country you have.
1: Um, it is an enormous document, but I think people will go go back and forth and pick out certain bits. And one, even when I was doing an official history, which is different, more of a history, mm. I think there is a responsibility of comprehensiveness because, um, you know, to take... One example: when we met with families, um, things like the operation of coroners' courts and so on, which isn't an obvious area, but it mattered a lot to them, and um, you know it wasn't that difficult for us to, to look into that as well. But it was important. Um, so, and also, I think w- what would have happened, uh, and you know, I, w- we can argue whether it could have been divided up in different ways, but what we could have done is just said, "We'll look at the decision." But actually. The aftermath, I think, was as important. And when the report came out, then people weren't necessarily looking beyond you know, the, the, the questions still left over about, and, you know, did, did he lie, was he mis- parliament misled, and so on. But actually, I think the, the, the stuff on the aftermath is, is really important and, uh, and is re- obviously relevant for the sort of topics I'm discussing in there, which is how do you, uh, how do you get involved in another country going through terrible situations? Um, without making it worse? Uh, how, are there ways of making it better? Are there ways of bringing stability to it in a very unstable situation? I think these are big questions that even if we're not involved with lots of troops uh, on the ground, well, there are still questions that are worth asking you know, through the United Nations or, or, or other bodies.
0: Thank you very much. Right, let's open it up to the audience. I think you were first, sir, and then gentlemen the gentleman there. Wait for, the, sorry, wait for the microphone and please say who you are. And
2: Thank you. It's Masato Kimura, Japanese freelance journalist. Uh, my question is about North Korea. Uh, how do you see the very dangerous world exchange between Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump with implication to use a nuclear uh, weapon? And uh, in the uh, unthinkable scenario, uh, how does uh, UK uh, nuclear deterrence work uh, in the terms of the uh, uh, collective defense with the United States?
1: Um, well, I mean, on the North Korea what I'd say the UK is pretty irrelevant. But um, uh, it's a good test of nuclear deterrence at the moment. Uh, so I think King Jong-un, is engaged in nuclear deterrence. I think he's basically pursuing a course that his grandfather and father pursued before him, which is to make his country as um, secure as possible, uh, or his regime as secure as possible. I don't think he's worried necessarily about the country as a whole, but he's certainly worried about his regime. Um, And there was a time maybe in the mid-'90s when the Americans and others might have been able to do something about it, but after a point, um, you've lost that option, well, the, or you haven't lost it, but you're taking greater and greater risks as time goes on, um, which is why it's always very dangerous uh, to start uh, issuing, saying these are red lines, and beyond this point you must not go. When, if they, at first, it's a temptation to do that. And secondly, if it's just developing a capability rather than actually killing people, um, then it's hard to make the case because the risks are so high. So my general assumption is, um, whatever the president may or may not say, that it, it's manageable. It's, what is the situation now is not that different from before, other than the Koreans keep on developing, North Koreans keep on developing more and more capabilities. But there's, I think there's two elements of, of, of danger. One is, is one that, again, has been there for a long time, which is that, you know, this is uh, a country that has, in principle, been at war since, uh, since the 1950s. There was only a ceasefire. There was never a, a peace treaty. Uh, the border, there have been lots of incidents involving North Korea, uh, which in other circumstances um, would be uh, uh, tend to be played down, but if you start to have you know an aircraft shot down or a, or a boat sunk uh, or, or uh, some shooting around the demilitarized zone, then when things are so tense one, you know, it, 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 it may be harder to contain and secondly the, ret- the rhetoric itself is is uh, becomes a pr- almost a provocation in both directions um, now you know North Korea. Um, you know, declares war every other day on somebody it, 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 you know their rhetoric has been debased by overuse um, so actually when they 're really cross they 've got no words left to describe it because they 've used every possible insult in the book already um, but for the americans it 's a different sort of game and, and um, you know if trump you know deals with Kim Jong- Un in the same way like he thinks he's dealing with Senator Corker or you know Hillary Clinton beforehand. It, you know it, it, it's dangerous because these these are different cultures, different people um, and could respond differently. You know, the, the, what happens if there's an atmospheric test and so on so uh, I, I think uh, it would be better for everybody if it was uh, calmed down uh, all that being said you know, there's a basic problem with North Korea, is it's hard to believe that this is a tenable society forever. Uh, And at some point, there won't be some major fracture uh, there. Uh, So, uh, at the moment, I think it it can be managed, should be managed, but uh, that's not to say that that we're not left, even after Trump has has gone with a dangerous situation.
0: This gentleman here. Uh, Richard Taylor. I hope this doesn't sound
1: too, too loaded a to
0: question really but you mentioned weapons systems and uh, platforms and so on but what is the relevance then in future of the Trident say if you, um, and and the carriers for future conflicts and future wars that this country would be involved in uh, It's always the question really if we wouldn't have started from
1: here? <laughs> well I think you might have gathered with, with the carriers possibly not I mean I, I think did, the, the, the problem with the carriers is not the idea of having carriers you know, my dad was in the Fleet Aerobe. Uh, you know, I, I, I have a... Uh, I think, you, but, but just building such great big ones uh, and uh, not thinking through alternative possibilities. Trident is slightly different. Um, uh, I mean, I've always been pretty agnostic on it, but I think at the moment, um, given the uncertainties with the United States, Actually, the case for Trident is probably stronger um, than it's been in the past. Uh, well, you know, it, it was always quite hard for this country to make the case for Trident, for its own independent nuclear deterrent, while at the same time insisting we believed wholeheartedly and fully in the, uh, in, in the US nuclear guarantee. Because, you know, the US was playing a role that we could never really play. Uh, if you start to doubt that, seriously doubt that... Um, then you do have an issue, uh, because you have Russia, um, which is, as we've seen with Ukraine, uh, at every moment, will remind people that it has its own nuclear deterrent. Don't don't meddle with us. Look what we can do to you. And that, I think, puts France and the UK in a a different position, if you can no longer be so sure about the United States. so. again it's it's part of the difficulty um of thinking about systems that uh are going to be with you long after the circumstances in which they're authorized have passed i mean i remember um, in uh, in 1982 in fact 1980 1980 when the trident original trident decision was made by the thatcher government you know pointing out then that these, you know, we have to, could it be a different world in 1995? Well, it was an incredibly different world in 1995. And if we'd thought just about the world as it was in 1995, we might not have bothered about Trident. It might have seemed, because uh, the Cold War then didn't, we looked very strong and powerful. Uh, so, you know, w- w- why bother? Um, but now I, you know, so, so that's why I think, you know, I, I'm cautious about this argument, but I, but I think um, the, the durability of the Atlantic Alliance is an issue, and in that case uh, it, it isn't wholly fanciful to, to see us having to play a different sort of role in the future than we've played in the past.
0: It's got Simon, and then at the front, front here, and then Lord Hannay. Uh,
1: yeah.
3: Simon Webb from the Nichols Group nowadays doing major projects, but erstwhile policy director of the MOD during an interesting period. Um, mm. um, Can I I make one point and then then engage in a debate? Um, The point is that not to ignore the people side of of preparation. I learned that actually it isn't the number of fast jets you've got, but the number of trained fast jet aircrew, which is probably the key factor, and the people who know how to make submarines quiet, and the people who maybe are commanders of armored brigades, something like that, and and that, that may be, you know, well worth the preparation, plus maybe the odd strategic thinker in the MOD um, and the IFG. Um, uh, the debate is, it goes like this, Lawrence, and we had to go to it a bit before, is, is, is really about being prepared for the enduring. Um, nice if you've got the resources, I think, was what the average MOD policy director would say, because, y- and, and you often haven't, you know, you, have, you can't undertake simultaneous camp- peacekeeping campaigns because you just don't have the force structure. Now, if we're going to be reserving a lot of our force structure for deterrence against Russia, which seems to be right at the moment and putting a lot of investment into that, we're going to have not much to do on civil wars. And I, I would just argue that you shouldn't completely limit yourself to making a brief intervention if it's going to be impossible to do the long one, even if that's the right thing. Because I would say there are a couple of scenarios. One is that some brief interventions have worked, you know, we did Sierra Leone and Timor and Bunia in Africa, actually, probably led by the French, was probably the one which stopped another Rwanda. And these are things which lasted a couple of months and looked to me, you know, good value for resources. Um, But you could have an acute case where you've got dreadful atrocities underway, which you could stop in a two-month campaign, but that's all you could do. And I worry that, that, applying the be ready, prepared to stay for a long time and replace the government and all those good things, teach them cricket and, and introduce democracy and so on, that you, you shouldn't be put off, particularly dealing with atrocities, if you, just because you can't stay there for the long run. Okay?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I, and I don't, I don't wholly disagree with that. I think the problem is um, if you've got somebody to work with on the ground, then you can go away. Um, and Sierra Leone was, you know, sort of fortuitous. Yeah. Um, we haven't had people going there for one purpose and we suddenly realised they could perform another. And that was good. Uh, Timor, um, you know, was essentially about preserving... A new entity was being created and could you look after them? Uh, could they look after themselves? It, it was a different sort of operation. Um, but, you know, Libya, we went in... To stop a massacre, which could—I mean—I think it could well have happened uh, if if, uh, we hadn't intervened. But it's very difficult to stop there uh, uh, because uh, you have intervened in a political struggle, um, and then what next? To to, to say we've now stopped Gaddafi's forces massacring people in Benghazi doesn't mean. Uh, is not the end of the matter because the people in Benghazi are now feeling a bit emboldened and, uh, and do we have a view on the outcome of this uh, so I think it's quite it, where you have these big conflicts going on um, the limited intervention uh, is quite hard uh, I think it is possible uh, not to get yourself in full occupation mode I think that I think that, that that would be Uh, a sort of slightly different way of putting it. But I think we took took our eye off the ball in Libya very quickly. Um, And a bit more effort there might have stopped an an awful lot more grief later on.
0: Thank you. At the front here.
4: I am coming to the back in a bit. Nick Gowing. Um, Laurie, can I pick you up on two points? Um, About the framing of war in the current digital environment. First of all, what about the constraint now, the visibility, the transparency of virtually everything that happens in the battlefield? Not just the launch, but where it lands, and also particularly in the civilian pressures and everything else, and when you think of the Baltics and what might happen there. How much is that going to be a constraint to the future of war, and whether war is even embarked upon? because there can be a feedback loop which can be amazingly quickly, asymmetrically, which can undermine the purpose for which you've been to war in ways which have ne- never been seen before. Mm. And secondly, um, everything you, much of what you've said has been the tradition of kinetic war and kinetic systems and so on. I mean, the, the vulnerability of these systems was graphically illustrated by the drone, the private drone which landed on the HMS QE. Uh, in Invergordon when it was going out for sea trials. Now, when you think of the implications of that asymmetric violation of security, you have to realize that a three billion pound ship can actually end up being blown up by a a privately um, flown drone. Which leads on to the other point about a very different kind of non-kinetic war, which, and I'm asking about the framing of warfare, which is not about kinetic, which is about digital, which is about cyber when the German government can issue a a warning a year ago saying, prepare yourselves with 10 days of food and water, because we cannot guarantee the stability of society anymore. That doesn't require um, uh, an Iskander missile sitting in Kaliningrad to be launched. It's a very different kind of warfare.
1: Yeah, uh, and I think these, obviously the issues I I try to address a bit in the book, I think first, the nature of the digital environment means the surprise attacks of the sort that you know, we might once have imagined uh, are quite now hard to achieve because everybody knows what's going on. Um, and This has been going on for a while. I, mean, I remember a long time ago, uh, in the early 90s, um, being told by it was ITN that uh, there was going to be an American... Uh, attack on some Iraqi installations that evening. They so, said, how do you know? Because they put down a news blackout. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, uh, um, yeah, it's just, an, everybody, you know, by the time we got to 2003, you had people uh, reporting on the, on the bombers taking off and people reporting on, on what's going on with the bombers landing. I mean, it is just that much more open. But, I mean, the, the point is that, um, you know, I think, I think we nonetheless... Uh, play down firepower, kinetic. Play down firepower at our peril. I mean, that's what basically kills people and wins wars. Uh, it, it, it's you, you can have lots of um, uh, interesting social media going on, say with the Arab Spring, uh, but where you know when the heavy stuff comes in, uh, then you're into a different sort of game, and that tends to be responded to with heavy stuff in return. See what happened in Syria, for example. So I think. Although it's important, I think we, we have to be quite careful. I'm. Look, I mean, as far as the cyber side goes, it's going on all the time. There's a constant co- activity in the cyber domain. There's little offence defence duels going on. You know, I think you, know, you talk about drones, but I, you know, I, I, if you get into discussions of autonomous vehicles, it's often found it quite surprising how. Little people who were developing those seem to have thought about some of the cyber implications of people getting hold of their uh, information systems and turning them, going around and, uh, 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 and taking control of them. I mean there's all sorts of stuff that can, can happen. However, to mount a cyber attack of any size and scale, rather than just sort of denial of service, but things that's actually sort of, you know, like pulling, up, pulling out the plug on society, Uh, you need a lot of knowledge and a lot of confidence um, because you've got to be sure that your target doesn't know exactly what you're up to or hasn't made some critical changes that you haven't noticed just days before you mount your attack. It's actually quite a hard thing to do if you're putting a lot of reliance on it, if it's just an ancillary to warfare, which it is these days, I mean every time the Russians get cross with somebody, there's a denial of service attack of some sort, or sometimes now much worse. So this is not to play down what's going on, but it's a question of whether it's ancillary or the real thing can actually um, come, you know, the, the electronic Pearl Harbor. And on that, I'm skeptical still. I think, and I think it probably uh, encourages um, a focus on, you know, the big catastrophe rather than uh, actually things that are just going on all the time and which are problematic. And and I'm not sure it needs you you to do different things, because if you're worried about critical infrastructure, um, then you need to protect it. I mean, even if it's just uh, a criminal gang, you you still need to protect it from attack and somebody holding it to ransom. So it doesn't necessarily lead to you doing a lot of very different things. Uh, but it may, as you use the word framing, it may mean that you frame it slightly differently.
2: Yes, David Haney, uh, member of the International Relations Committee of the House Lords. Um, Unfortunately, this could be Iran week um, in the next couple of days, and I wonder if you could just um, give us some thoughts on the Trump administration's attitude towards Iran uh, do you think it would the uh, JCPOA was a seriously successful attempt to bolster the non-proliferation treaty, which appears not to be the view of President Trump, but with the view of pretty well everyone else? Uh, and what do you think of the way in which the President, at least, has approached the relationship with Saudi Arabia, which bears some rather uh, unfortunate parallels to the relationship between the Kaisers Germany and Habsburg Austria?
1: And the difficulty with Trump is, is well, many, but I mean, one is whether the assumption that there's a strategy behind this um, and the, you know, it's just this is an Obama deal, he doesn't like any international deals. He always assumes as a matter of course that the United States got done over. By whoever they were having a deal with, and therefore uh, they should be abandoned and something better put in its place. And he just says this the Trump administration, um, the Secretary of Defense, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, have declared themselves perfectly happy with Iranian compliance. They're not happy with other things Iran is doing, and nor should we be, but they're happy, you know, on, on the deal itself. They don't think there's anything wrong. And, and also, the, the assumption is that what Trump will come up with, uh, if he decertifies, which is essentially non, they're in non compliance, he's put it to the Senate um, for a discussion about what therefore should follow in terms of sanctions and so on. Well, in the middle of doing this, uh, he's just had a, an extraordinary um, Twitter um, dispute with the Republican chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee which if he's, you know, if he's really serious about wanting to t- turn this over isn't necessarily a good way to start so I, I suspect that this w- will be less than we might fear but it's a bizarre way to go about international diplomacy and of course what is significant is the the allies will not follow. Um, and that really, you know, in the past, everybody you know would be de- working really hard to find a common position. But in this case, um, you know, the sort of shrugging so- shoulders or oh, it's Trump um, it means that the, the people just don't see the point. It's not because. Effectively, you know, I don't think this is a very comfortable position at all, but essentially we're relying on uh, the Secretary of Defence, the, the, his Chief of Staff, the National Security Advisor, um, to stop anything really stupid going on. Um, you know, So whereas those of us old enough to remember seven days in May uh, and the assumption that the, uh, the military were the crazies and we need wide, wide civilian presidents to keep them in order, we suddenly find the roles are rather reversed.
0: Thank you. At the back here and then at the front. Uh,
5: David Walker, Guardian Public. Um, you seemed earlier to be emphasising the conditionality of future conflict on public opinion. There are two issues. Um, one, the empirical one, which Bobbitt, Philip Bobbitt has emphasised, whether the public opinion in societies like ours would ever sustain a long-haul conflict whether there are now in principle objections in the structure of society and the opinion generated. And so the second empirical point is whether we, you know, the nature of society is, is such that they couldn't do it. And related to that, disciplinary, the people who study public opinion tend not to be the same kinds of people who are interested in warfare and international relations. They tend to be, dare I say, sociologists. And so there's a, <laughs> there's a disciplinary gap there in terms of when, if public opinion is going to matter more for war who will understand it so, and bring those insights into the, the, the arena of, of war studies?
0: Soci- sociologists are welcome here. I'd just like to make that clear. Um, <laughs> I, I, I so was struck know. there was no Philip Bobbitt in your book. He is? No, there. He is. Oh, he, oh, is. he is. Okay, I know. missed it. Okay, in in sorry. A fo- it's, a fo- it's only a footnote. Oh, it's a footnote. Okay, I didn't read all the footnotes. Like no,
1: no, no, right. <laughs> he is there. <laughs> um, um, and I know some belligerent sociologists. Um, <laughs> I, I, I Make you an offer you can't understand. LAUGHTER <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, uh, I think, I think public opinion can be resilient. You know, public opinion turned against Iraq quite quickly, but not against Afghanistan. I think it partly depends on the cost, you know, what's going on, um, and what sustainability means. Um, you know, we've been involved in Afghanistan for an awful long time now, uh, and. Um, on the american side and possibly ours because we're being pressured to stay engaged um we're going to carry on uh and it's sort of at a a a manageable level which is not about winning it's about not losing Uh, and it's not a very satisfactory way to continue things but it's not impossible uh whether we could sustain the sort of titanic Conflicts of, of like the First and Second World War, um, it's hard to know. But when you look... I mean, when you look at the way that conflicts develop, it's extraordinary the way that human societies uh, very painfully adapt and change, because they have no choice. That's what they, that's what they have to do when, when they see themselves in a real struggle. Um, now, the difference... I think for the UK, countries like the UK, uh, is the conflicts we've been involved in have a sort of discretionary element to them. Um, when, and I'm not sure I like the word existential, used, but, um, but but they're not about our whole way of the survival of our state, our territory, our whole way of life. They're discretionary uh, thing. The the country carries on if we decide not to get involved. And therefore, there are going to be, um, there's a sense of proportionality. What's it worth? Uh, And, you know, when you, you know, I mean, Nick was was mentioning the sort of costs of, um, you know, our big expensive kit is against some of the stuff that can be used against us. Somebody gave me a figure the other day for the United States, decision to stay in Afghanistan. It's possibly costing $40 billion over the next five years, which is staggering, really, given the limits of what anybody expects this to achieve. So okay, you know, our societies can afford these amounts of, that's how we wish to spend our tax dollars or pounds. Uh, but it's hard to say this is enormous value for money uh, in, in some great scheme of things. So I think those sort of conversations are going to be, are going to be difficult. So, this is, so what's discretionary and what's not? Is dealing with ISIS in Iraq and Syria less discretionary because of their capacity to develop, potentially, what looked like, their capacity to develop bases from which to mount attacks on Western Europe? Um, So I think the question of national interest, uh, of security, uh, has to be asked much more carefully if you want to uh, in the future. First, because, you don't want to rush into conflict on the grounds that there may be a risk here, yet you, know, you make it worse by the very act of intervention. Yet some things, if you do leave alone, can get very bad. And you know Syria is a, is a good example. Because of Iraq and Afghanistan, we, um, we didn't uh, intervene in Syria. Uh, and there was a moment when everybody thought that was about to happen, and it didn't. Um, but it didn't mean to say we were unaffected by what went on in Syria. And then we were very affected by what went on in Syria, some parts of Europe more so than us. So I think it's having a sensible debate about what's at stake, what our interests are that matters. And if you can make, going back to making the case, if you can make the case that that it is worth, that it is important, then I think it can probably be sustained.
0: Thank you. And last question at the front here.
3: Hi. Isabella I'm a political journalist. Um, why do you say that the durability of NATO is in question? I wonder whether is that just because of Trump and his protestations about member states' contributions, in which case we might hope that that's a temporary situation, he's not going to be there forever, or is it because you see real holes in the deployment strategy of NATO?
1: It's not the deployment strategy of NATO. I think... It's, you know, it's extraordinary that we've got an alliance that was put together in 1949, um, and is still in place, and indeed has acquired a lot more members. Um, and I think it's, it has contributed to um, the stability of the continent, uh, the opportunities, including you know, those with the European Union and so on. So I'm a great you know, fan of NATO. Um, But I think you have to ask about how long it continued. It's not just a Trump question. Um, The point about about NATO is just you want it to to exist, because if you don't have the alliance there, imagine Europe at the moment if there was no NATO, uh, and alliances were being formed and reformed according to political dispositions, ideologies, um, and so on, it, could become, it would look quite quickly quite a scary place, um, and the fact that we've got our alliance sorted just takes that out of the equation at the moment, which is why it's a good thing. Um, but for the United States, it involves making a commitment to a bunch of countries that have got, uh, that are rich, that really ought to look after themselves, whose main threat comes from a country that has a GDP the size of what Spain. Um, and got really severe long-term problems. And so, you know, European leaders know that if they were in Washington, um, whether they would make those alliance obligations in the same way is now, um, uh, you know, there's some of the opinion polling in Germany uh, about what obligations they may feel in security terms. Uh, and you don't get, you know, vast majority is saying, that, understanding, actually, what the, the German commitment to Article 5 is. So I just don't think one, one can assume it. Now, Trump, obviously, um, is maybe just something to be endured. And in the end, everybody will, will get over it, and uh, all and we'll will be back to normal. But, but you, you could see the same questions being asked by other American, pre- uh, other American presidents, to some extent by Obama. Um, and um, certainly american public opinion now i you know i think
3: you know
1: i've been around long enough to see the number of times when nato has been in disarray you know you think it's never in array but it, but it's it, it's it's. you can't just assume that, that it'll go on forever uh, and it's, it seems to me prudent to at least think about the consequences of European security without American guidance all the time. No more than that. If we can carry on, fine. I'd rather that was the case. But it doesn't seem to me one can assume it. Thank
0: you. So thank you very much, everybody, for your really interesting questions, uh, for joining this discussion. Um, Please join us for a drink uh, outside. Um, And finally, please join me in thanking Lawrence Friedman.